This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Priya Parker. Priya is a facilitator and strategic advisor. She's the founder of Thrive Labs, at which she helps activists, elected officials, corporate executives, educators, and philanthropists create transformative gatherings. She works with teams and leaders across technology, business, the arts, fashion, and politics to clarify their vision for the future and build meaningful, purpose-driven communities. Here's my conversation with someone who really understands how creating intentional gatherings can be a powerful form of leadership. Priya Parker. Priya, welcome to Insights at the Edge. Thank you so much for making the time for this conversation. Thank you for having me. It's my sense, and I've heard this from several Sounds True authors, that we're living in a time in North America where many, many people are experiencing an epidemic of loneliness, feeling in some way lonely and disconnected. And I wonder what you think about that. I think it's absolutely true. I mean, the former attorney general declared um, a crisis of loneliness, and it's, uh, you know, people are writing about it left and right, um, that at a time where, ironically, we have more tools than ever before to connect us digitally, um, the quality with which we connect and the assumptions that um, are baked into the design of those technologies as to what connection means, what a like means, what a friend is, <laughs> what our life looks like, or at least how we, the, the side that we show online is actually leading to not just loneliness, but also increased levels of social anxiety and uh, depression, and um, and at the center of a lot of it, a lack of, of connection, a feeling of isolation. Now, you've been mentioning in this response about technology and social media and how that gives us the illusion of feeling connected and contacted, but perhaps emotionally we don't actually feel connected and contacted. Besides social media use and how technology is playing this role in our lives of helping us feel, I guess you could say, connected but not contacted would be my language. What else do you think are the factors that have created this crisis of loneliness? I think um, in addition to social technology, I think another force is um, is technology and, and not meaning social media, but with the ease of being able to order anything online, um, we're trading uh, efficiency for community. And some community is intentional, and that's the type of community I write about, you know, in the art of gathering. But a lot of community is actually informal. So going to the grocery store, um, going to the dry cleaners, going to the places, public or private, that are um, you go for one specific need, which might mean be to, you know, get your lettuce. 
streets and we'd run into people on the way. Um, we used to uh, go, frankly, to the library. And now um, there are a lot of ways that we can consume content. We used to go to the movie theaters and now we can watch Netflix at home. Um, and so part of this always on demand economy is also making us, you know, not bump into people or to collide into people, um, to use Tony Shea's language anymore. And then I think a, a third element is um, we are really, really, really busy. And this kind of culture of busyness, this culture of always on, and not just for technology, the number of hours Americans are working, um, the, the desire to multitask all of the time, our distraction levels have gone, you know, through the roof. Um, and it's very, you know, there's studies that show that in any conversation um, now between people, the number of times we make eye contact with each other has gone down in part because we're doing other things at the same time. Yes, looking at our phone, but also kind of um, have prioritized the values of productivity over the values of connection. Mm-hmm. Th- those are all very interesting forces at work. Thank you for that. Now, my question to you is you've written this book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. And I want to talk some about your work with creating transformative and meaningful gatherings. But before we get there, how do you think people can start addressing this crisis of loneliness in their life, even before they're getting groups of people together or going to gatherings? just in a one-to-one way, making contact with people who we live with or with our people at work? What do you think some of the antidotes are for this loneliness? I think the first is to do less. Um, It's very difficult to uh, feel deeply when um, you're a machine, frankly. Um, and to begin thinking very consciously about how do you spend your time with who and then when you're with them, how. Um, I think a second thing to go back to technology is, you know, there's been studies that have recently shown, particularly among um, teenagers and, uh, and middle schoolers, that different social media outlets lead to different levels of anxiety. Um, interestingly, I recently saw a study um, in Jonathan Haidt's new work that showed that Instagram is the worst of the five in terms of increasing anxiety and increasing unhappiness and depression levels in part because of the ways that we show ourselves on Instagram um, and, and the kind of the addictive, almost lottery style um, uh, designed element of constantly checking if people have, you know, liked your post. Um, And so, and so part of it is also intentionally using technology or not using it. And then I think the third is asking when you are spending time with people one-on-one, um, how do I create a, a environment? How do I connect with people um, in a meaningful way? And for me, um, I'm, I've always been primarily interested in meaning-making through conversation. There are many, many, many forms of making meaning, you know, dance and um, photography and a lot of other kind of forms. But for me, I've always been fascinated about how you can... Um, connect with people through through words. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go right there in terms of one-to-one making meaning through conversation. Interestingly, you and I are making meaning right now through conversation. <laughs> absolutely. At least it's working for me. I hope it's working for you. <laughs> it's, absolutely. How do I do that even more, especially when I'm making meaning through conversation 
with members of my family and I feel defended and I'm not sure I really want to be close to them or other people at work where I have a, you know, certain masks perhaps that we're wearing because there are roles we're playing in each other's lives. What are some of the tips for one-to-one making meaning through conversation? Start with purpose. I mean, start with whether it's a family member or whether it's a colleague in each moment that you, particularly when you plan to see them, um, what is it in this moment that I want to get out of this meeting? What do I want to give? How do I want to show up? Um, and and so if it's with a family member, um, you know, if you're, if you're playing a specific role and you keep going over the same, you know, fight or role over and over and over again and, and it's not serving you anymore, change the pattern. I'll give an example from my own life. I, um, I think probably like many listeners have a complicated relationship with, um, with some members of my family. And um, one of the, the dynamics that I was getting into with my, um, with my father was that when we would get together as, you know, as me as an adult, um, it was a complicated dynamic because of the other relationships involved on both sides of our families. And we would kept, basically getting into these same stuck roles. And long story short, we, we, I invited him. He lives in Washington. I live in New York. And I invited him um, to meet me in Philadelphia <laughs> once a month. Um, and we called it a Philadelphia day. And um, it was on kind of neutral territory, if you will, like not in his home, not in mine. And um, we just, we'd, we'd take the bus down or up with the train and um, meet and spend eight hours together kind of roaming the city, um, sitting in parks, going to, you know, once I had a child, going to a playground, doing very simple stuff, going to you know public museum. Um, and, and it completely changed our dynamic. And it took us out of this kind of always specific role that we would play into when there was other context of other relationships that were involved. And so some of it is just thinking very, um, very kind of, specifically about uh, how do you meet people in a context where you don't have to play the same role that you always play. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. And then what about in a work environment where you want to have more contact with people, but you're not quite sure how to go about it, more meaningful contact? I think, I mean, you know, I always think about gatherings, but I think asking people questions that, um, that, aren't necessarily always on the nose, so not necessarily about work, but asking people questions about themselves. You know, part of um, being at work is is wanting to be seen for who you are, and, and many of us have many complicated sides, and sides that are, you know, kind of complex and paradoxical, and um, asking, people, get, asking people questions about, you know, other parts of their life um, that doesn't have to be totally obtrusive, but, but that get them to show you a side of them that you may not know. You know, maybe somebody's a beekeeper on the side, or maybe um, they volunteered for a Peace Corps 30 years ago, and you, you never know that. And, and getting people to um, tell stories about themselves, particularly stories about their younger selves, tends to allow for um, kind of much more meaningful conversation. Um, and, and, I mean, I guess the simple point is ask people for their stories rather than their opinions. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I'm curious what you think about is risk-taking in conversation as a way to create more contact and more meaning, and risks that you take in conversations. A lot of the research that's now coming out, um, you know, Brene Brown is part of this wave, is showing that 
that intimacy is, is created in part through vulnerability. And vulnerability is one form of risk. Um, there's other forms of risk. You can take physical risks. You can take um, psychological risks. Risk can be through actually broaching subjects you don't want to talk about, the subjects we avoid. Um, but basically, when you start kind of lowering your water level, if you will, of what you're willing to show and share about yourself to others, others typically mirror it. And um, part of risk-taking, you know, one of the... Um, one of the people that I interviewed for this for this book is a woman named Ida Benedito, and she um, calls herself a transgression consultant. So she literally helps people take risks, cross boundaries, cross borders, um, and she does it primarily through creating group experiences. And I asked her, I said, what, did, what, what can we learn from you as we think about um, doing this and creating this in our own lives? And she said, you know, before every experience that I design, I ask four questions. I say, first, what is this group avoiding. Number two, what is the gift in helping them face it? Number three, what is the risk? And number four, is the gift worth the risk? Mm -hmm. Those are good questions. Now, I'm going to be a little vulnerable with you here for a moment, Priya, which is, you know, I've done hundreds and hundreds of interviews at this point, and I feel comfortable asking edgy questions, if you will. I mean, this program's called Insights at the Edge. And, you know, within my own personal life, I've had a couple of instances where I've sat down with people and I've started talking to them and I've asked them a few questions. And it's been like, whoa, you are getting under my skin. Back off, babe. Mm. You have no right mm. to be asking me that question right now. And, you know, this is not an interview or something like that. I mean, I've, I've gotten some negative feedback over the years. So I'm curious what you think about that when maybe asking certain transgressive questions, even though at the time I didn't think they were particularly transgressive. I thought it was just something I was curious about. But not everybody's interested in that. Not everybody's interested in that. And those aren't your people. <laughs> um, part of, I mean, what I would say to you is, whether it's with your, you know, with your podcast or the rest of your work, um, to always to come back to purpose and to say, well, what is, the, what is my purpose? What, what can I uniquely do? What is a need in this world that I might have the passion and capacity to address. And one of the needs, it sounds like, is to, uh, is to have more meaningful conversation and to take risks. Uh, that doesn't mean it will always go well. And that doesn't mean that everybody is for you. Um, but part of, I think, sticky conversations, sticky podcasts, places that have passionate subcommunities, passionate followers, they're places that are, they're places and questions and ways of being that are disputable. They're specific. They're not for everybody. And so at some level, if you're not upsetting, I don't know, a certain percentage of, of the people that you talk to over a lifetime, I would say that you haven't found your specificity and your disputability. Um, and actually that, it, you know, obviously there's a, obviously there's the pendulum can swing too far. Um, but, but if the discomfort you're creating is connected to your sense of, of intentional purpose with integrity, I would say you're probably moving in the right direction. Now, you've used this interesting word, finding your disputability. Tell me what you mean by that and why that's a positive thing. I think that, you know, this is true in brands. This is absolutely true in gatherings that at some level, if you are for everybody, you are for nobody. So in Barack Obama's first book, one of the things that one of his great aunts tells him when he goes to visit Kenya, and he says, she says something like, you know, the, the problem with your father and his father, um, you know, it's sort of a thought of, he's Kenyan, but thought of him as a global citizen. He says, your father basically thinks that everybody is family. And the problem when everybody is family is that nobody is family. 
And what she meant by that was that in, to have an in, you kind of have to have some amount of outs. There has to be some level of who is this for. So I'll give a specific example. You know, in gatherings, one of the things that I found as I interviewed, you know, people who create wild, specific, transgressive, transformative experiences for other people around the world, almost all of them created gatherings that it was very clear that they were, they were for some people. And these gatherings absolutely were not for some people. They were comfortable with excluding, but not excluding based on bias or race or, you know, religion, exclusion based on purpose. So I'll give an example. I um, was talking to a writer. Her name is Jancy Dunn, and she had she, she was supposed to host a dinner party. And um, it was actually she was on assignment. And um, she spoke to me and she said, you know, how do I host a better dinner party? And I said, well, do it around a specific need in your life that's disputable. And she said, well, what do you mean? So I said, well, what's something in your life you're currently, you know, going through? And she said, well, I'm a worn out mom. I'm exhausted. I, um, someone gave me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich the other day and it was cut into triangles and I, and I ate it and I, I cried. And I said, why did you cry? And she said, well, because I, I realized that I am always in the role of caretaker, but I'm, I'm kind of exhausted. And I said, great, let's build on that. What if you hold, held a dinner for other worn out moms? And she was like, I love it. Great. Give it a name. The worn out mom's hootenanny. Okay, great. Give it a rule. If you take, uh, if you talk about your kids, you have to take a shot. Okay. Uh-huh. And she, and she actually, she actually did this. She sent out an email to six of her other worn out moms. She called it the worn out mom's hootenanny. People responded within an hour. Everyone responded yes. They did take out because everyone was worn out, and it was this like beautiful, fun, hilarious night. And it was specific, right? It was for worn out moms. It was disputable. That night wasn't for dads. That night wasn't for non-mothers. That night, you know, if you wanted to, if you don't drink, like, too bad. You know, and, you know, I'm being a little facetious here, but part of an ability to be seen and, and part of an ability to get people excited and to kind of let people laugh a bit and say, like, huh, that's interesting, is to have a point of view, is to be disputable, is to, is to not please everybody all of the time. And, you know, the lens I look at this is through gatherings, because I think one of the most powerful things around gatherings is you can host anything, anytime, and it's a temporary moment in time that fits a temporary need that will pass, which means you can have it be about something else next time. Um, but part of the reasons I think most of our, so many of our gatherings are kind of boring is because we're afraid to be disputable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I want to go into an area that I think is a bit fraught and we're going to talk more about gatherings that I can put on and I can create the purpose and, or, you know, the listener can hear and magnetize the in people. But what about when I'm going to a family gathering? And I want to talk about this, Priya, because this conversation is broadcasting right before the holidays, when I think mm-hmm. many people will be going to family gatherings and they feel out, but they actually would like to be in something like that, going mm-hmm. along with what you're saying about in and out. And I want to be accepted. What's my purpose for going to the family gathering? Love with my family. How am I going mm-hmm. to do that? Probably by keeping my mouth shut, I think, or something <laughs> like that. But anyway, what would be your advice for how can I make a family gathering meaningful when there's a lot of ways that maybe I'm not sure being authentic is going to work? Mm-hmm. Every family is different. What, what is a great... Uh... Uh, I'm going to butcher this Tolstoy line that, you know, happy families are all the same, but each, each unhappy family is, is unique or <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, much, much, you know, better phrase than that. 
so, you know, it depends on the family, but in my, in my experience, families more than perhaps any other type of group have specific roles where people tend to get stuck in, you know, mother, father, daughter, sister, brother, and that have been baked in as part of their identity over long periods of time. Yeah. So changing gatherings when people are so embodied into their roles, even over stuck into their roles, can be very difficult. And what I've seen from a family perspective, when families have changed their patterns, it rarely happens in the room. It happens well before when one or two family members talk offline well ahead of time and begin to have a conversation that just like you and I are having right now, which is, do you think we could do it differently this year? What, would, what do you think? Do you think people would be up for it if we X or if we Y? Basically, one month out or one week out, or if, frankly, sometimes a few hours before. Um, basically say, like, let's try something new this this year. One of the um, experiences that I've seen, you know, my, my, my background is in conflict resolution, is in group conflict resolution. And I had a mentor named Rhonda Sleem, um, who's a Middle East expert. She's a Lebanese-American. And she always used to say to me before we'd go into these high-stakes dialogues, kind of closed room um, with leaders from different region, regions in the world, and she'd always say, Priya, 90% of the, um, of the success that happens in this room happens well before we even step inside the room. And in her case, it was, it was quite extreme. She'd spent two years kind of priming the participants, getting them ready to kind of come in. And in this case, it was um, leaders from Arab opposition um, parties and leaders in Europe and leaders in the U.S. And there's all sorts of reasons they didn't want to come together or shouldn't come together. And, um, and, and not that families are, you know, warring parties in the Middle East, but, but part of the insight is in the moment, it's very difficult to throw people off their scripts and throw people off their roles, in part because if you throw one person off their role, everybody else then gets shaky, you know, so part in, in kind of family therapy, um, part of the huge kind of innovation in the field of individual therapy was that people began to, therapists began to realize that when one person um, kind of healed from addiction or from other um, from another element and went back into what went back into the quote unquote family system, they would either relapse or strangely, sometimes the, the symptoms would come up in another part of the family. And in part, because the system itself didn't know how to be not in that equilibrium. And so all of that to say with, with your listeners, you know, I deal with this myself to find an ally in the family um, and ask ahead of time, hey, like, what, what if we did this this year? Um, I'll give an example. Um, one of the people I spoke with um, who I admire a uh, gathering that he started called The Moth. His name is George Dawes Green. And he, um, are you familiar with The Moth? No. So it's a series of storytelling nights around the world. They also have a podcast um, started, I think, over 20 years ago. They have, they're in dozens and dozens of cities around the world. And basically, they, um, he is a poet, and he used to go to poetry readings, and he found them kind of inauthentic. Um, and he realized that the, the parts that people were really interested in, the poetry nights were the kind of, when the poet was kind of clearing her throat, the, you know, to explain the poem and say, you know, this next poem I wrote actually began because my father used to take me on these fishing, fishing trips, you know, at five in the morning and we put our boots on and, and every, and the whole audience would kind of lean into the story. And then the person would start the poem and it was, you know, the sort of performative 
um, like lack mm-hmm. of connection moments. And he said, why don't we just create a night that where the entire night is just like those first five minutes, right? The story. And, um, and so a moth night is everybody, uh, you get, I think there's like 10 stories, 10 story spots. You get five to 10 minutes to tell a story. Anybody, they choose a theme. Um, so like irony or rallying the troops or identity or, you know, anything. And, um, you, if you want to tell a story, this is for the public nights. If you want to tell a story, you put your name in a hat. They, there's usually an MC to the night. They pick out 10 names and you go up on stage in front of a bunch of strangers and you tell, a, you know, the a story of your life. And George was going to have a family reunion, um, and I think 80 or 100 members were coming, extended family reunion, and his sister said, you know, rather than just playing kind of, you know, uh, games in the front yard, as we often do, how, how can we actually meaningfully connect this family? What if we took this model of, of a moth night and did it for our family? Um, give everybody who wants to five minutes to tell, tell a story of what does it mean to be a green and you know that's his last name, and as he and and they rented out like a you know a little hall in the town that they you know they decided to meet in, and eighty members kind of piled in, and everybody as he told it from his kind of his 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 nephew to like a great uncle who lived all over the country got five minutes um, to take the stage in front of family members that they knew very well and family members they hadn't seen in years and tell one small story of for them what it meant to be a green, and I love this story because one in advance people kind of you know, we're on board with it or decided this is cool, but also that here's a collective kind of almost tribal moment where a 12 year old may say, you know, I was in middle school and such and such happened and I responded this way. And that's what it means to be a green. And someone halfway across the country thinks, smiles, that is what it means to be a green. That's a great example. And I'm wondering if you have any other examples for people who are getting ready to go to a family <laughs> gathering and they're thinking, you know, I'm going to call my brother or sister before I go and let's try this experiment at our upcoming yeah. gathering. Yeah. So I'll get another one that I love. It's called 15 Toasts. It's an experiment I started with a kind of collaborator of mine named Tim Lebricht. And here's how it works. And I've used this with my family. Um, I'm half Indian, half white American. And I've used this with um, my uh, Indian family when we got together, my extended family and my husband's extended family. So I have tried it with family. And basically, you choose a theme that um, feels relevant, and it can be anything from a good life, like what is a good life, to tradition, to identity, to um, home or belonging, It can anything under the sun. Um, and the rules are, at some point in the night, you explain to this every, to everybody either in advance or, or at the night, depending on the context of your family, you ding a glass and you... Um, stand up kind of old school style and you give a toast to that theme. Um, but the toast isn't your opinion about that theme. It's a story or an experience from some time in your life that ideally no one in the room has heard before. And in a family, this is actually really important. Um, and we have dozens of stories that we've never shared with our family. I mean, you know, a life is a long thing. And um, you share, you share a story or an experience related to the theme. And, um, and the only other rule is that the last person has to sing their toast. So that definitely, that's it's sure. the night along. Um, but it also gives people some kind of focus um, while also allowing their, t- and structure, um, but allowing a night of family members rather than kind of like judging so-and-so's choices um, or getting into politics, 
um, to kind of talk, talk around it, but in a meaningful way. Um, and the other thing that I just, that I learned from a friend a long time ago is when you actually finally give your toast, not to toast to a person, but to toast to a value. So say you give a story of, you know, I was in summer camp and, um, I, you know, I, this is a real story. I, I was in summer camp when I first moved to the U S. Um, my father's American, but I was born in Zimbabwe. And so I was born an American citizen, but I, 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 I moved to the U S uh, when I was five and I moved and I had an accent and, um, I was at some, but I didn't know that. <laughs> and, and I was at summer camp and a friend, um, somebody came up to me and said, you know, you have an accent. And, and they said it in a bad, you know, negative way. And I ran home and I said to my father, you know, I have an accent and I was crying. And, and he said, and he looked at me and he said, Priya, everybody has an accent. And I thought, huh? Oh, and you know, I, I, what he meant, and though they have, you know, an American or a Tucsonian accent or an Arizonian accent, you know, you happen to have a slight Indonesian accent. And he completely reframed for me, you know, what it means to carry something with you. And so if I told that story, rather than at the end saying to my dad, you know, and everyone says to Priya's dad, I would say like to reframing or to accents mm-hmm. or, you know, to owning a part of yourself that you thought you were embarrassed by. And, and part of the switch is like everybody can relate to a value and when you toast to a value, people can see themselves in it. Whereas when you toast to a person, it depends on how you feel about that person. <laughs> now, this gathering format, 15 toasts, came out of a specific situation you were in, and then you were having a creative response. Can you share the story of how this format <laughs> came into being? I was um, part of a council at the World Economic Forum, and um, every year the more famous gathering is Davos uh, about six months beforehand. They gather members of uh, 90 councils um, often in Abu Dhabi or Dubai to kind of come together and um, work on whatever their topic is. Mine, excuse me, mine happened to be uh, new models of leadership one year and one year was values. And what I realized in these kind of conferences is amazing people were in the room, um, people, you know, at the top of their field or doing going some, you know, extreme element of, you know, on the fringe of a community in terms of like scientific discovery, like really interesting stuff. But the dynamic of the room was to kind of spin your story like a press secretary, sort of talk about the best part of yourself and in a way kind of sell yourself. And it didn't, I mean, we began this conversation about loneliness. I felt very lonely. I didn't feel like I was connecting in a meaningful way with people. I, I felt kind of exhausted by the entire experience. And so um, we, a friend and I, uh, who had, had done some work before together, um, both happened to, um, you know, be going to this thing. We thought, what if we hack the system a bit? What if we hosted a gathering the night before that inverted the norms of kind of always like talking about yourself in this, you know, self-congratulatory way or reading off your resume? Could we create a dynamic with the same people where we were actually vulnerable together and explored the parts of ourselves that were still baking, not the fully baked, you know, fully baked parts. What if we could do something where people were invited to give their sprout speeches rather than their stump speeches, you know, rather than their elevator pitches. So we invited 15 people from these different councils. Part of the hypothesis was if there's all of these different councils, let's invite one person from each, because if they can be changed by this gathering, maybe they could take some of that, you know, fairy dust, if you will, into the, into the main room the next day. 
we chose a theme. In that case, we chose a good life because um, not the good life, but what is a good life, we think is an interesting question. And we'd actually done some work on it before. So we were both comfortable with it and um, invited people to come. And we, um, it was a private, it was like a private space so that, you know, other people at a restaurant couldn't overhear this, you know, sort of vulnerable conversation. And um, we told people at the beginning of the night these rules. And what was so beautiful about it was very early on, um, it's very difficult to kind of talk about a good life without kind of thinking about death. You know, the what does it mean to live well? Well, part of it is life is short, and you have to kind of realize that. And 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 as different people share different parts of themselves, and I remember one person, and the rules of the dinner are the Chatham House rules, so you can share people's stories and talk about the experience, but not attribute it to anybody. So I'm not breaking any rules here, but um, you know, one woman shared that every morning she she literally said, I you know, I've never actually told anybody this before, but every morning I do a death meditation. And I said, what is that? She was a young woman. And she said, well, it's sort of like, um, um, it's a beautiful life. You know, the movie, I, I, I imagine that I'm, I close my eyes, I breathe. I imagine that I'm, I, you know, that I'm, that I've, that I've died and that I'm looking at all of the people I love and all of the things that I love on this planet, but particularly all the people I love. And I look at each of them and I feel so deeply grateful. And then I like wiggle my fingers and my toes and I come back into the room and I think, wow, I'm alive. And I mean, in a, you know, sort of professional context to share something like that was like riveting. Um, and she clearly felt safe enough to share it. And it began to, you know, we talked about vulnerability earlier. People then started sharing other, you know, same people were sharing things that their mother shared with them on their deathbed, like their final words. And, and at some level, you know, we created a safe space. We, we invited them in people, some people, you know, shared toasts that weren't as vulnerable and that was totally great as well. Um, but we inverted the norms where all of a sudden to actually share the parts of ourselves that, you know, aren't as, you know, fully tied together um, became kind of the currency of cool and uh, in the context of the gathering. And we left that night feeling moved and alive and connected to each other. And to this day, if I see any of those people, you know, there's this very special bond. And it was one night. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. I'm curious, other questions, prompts that you've thrown into 15 Toasts and what's worked really well? And maybe if you could also share what hasn't worked so well, what fell a little <laughs> flat? We've tried this um, this kind of process and methodology now in a lot of different contexts. We probably had 40 or more 15 Toast dinners around the world and all sorts of themes. So some of the themes, I'll just name a few and then... Um, and then, and then answer your second question. We've done 15 toasts to fear, um, to romance, to uh, collateral damage, to home, to belonging, to America, um, 
to The Stranger, uh, 15 Toasts to Rebellion, um, at 15 Toasts to Borders. Um, and the themes that we've seen over time that work really well are the ones, interestingly, that have a, have two things. One, a little bit of darkness to them or a little bit of kind of complication to them. Um, so fear was a you know beautiful night. Rebellion. Um, uh, borders. I wasn't at that one, but the, but the, you know, the, the ones that with the complicated relationships too. And the second were our themes where it can be interpreted in multiple ways. Um, so, uh, home, you know, people think of home as a lot of different things or, or, or stranger, um, things that aren't necessarily one way to interpret it. And, and, and the themes that worked less well were the ones that were in a way too sweet. Um, so 15 Toasts to Happiness, I think, ironically fell a little flat. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and part of this is, again, we're complicated creatures that are interested in um, in complicated things and that we have many sides and selves. I mean, these are all themes and you can give toasts to them. But a, a set of questions that I love and somebody I admire is the... Um, is the uh, British historian. Um, he's a, I mean, he's British, but he has his field is French history. His name is Theodore Zeldin, and he has this. Um, he calls it a menu of conversation that um, is a series of questions that he's actually hosted many public birthday parties. I think for his you know, 78th birthday, he invites all of London through the newspaper to join in a public park in London and uh, to have a conversation with a stranger. And you show up and on the table isn't food or drink, but is actually just a menu. And there's an appetizer, you know, a question for apps, a question for fish, a question for meat, a question for, you know, dessert. But the questions are things like, what have you rebelled against in the past? And what are you rebelling against now? Um, you know, and there are these kind of beautiful questions that spark great conversation, but also he has the insight that we are often willing to tell strangers things that we wouldn't tell people in our own family, in part because they have no stake in the story of our life. And so we can actually explore things aloud and they are not threatened or implicated by any of these deviations. Now, it's interesting in many of the examples you've given, whether it's 15 toasts or a family saying, what does it mean to be a green, a, a member of this family. Mm-hmm. You've introduced these elements of structure. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to all respond to this question. There may be some ground rules. You know, the last person at 15 Toasts is going to sing. And now, once mm-hmm. again, I'm going to share vulnerably with you, Priya, and our <laughs> listeners. As we were approaching Thanksgiving at our house, I said to my wife, this was about two hours before we were having 15 people over, a little late in the game. But I said, you know, hey, should we, should we like structure this in any way? So like, should people share what they're grateful for, anything like that? And mm-hmm. she was like, oh, come on, Tammy, I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. Let's just leave it open and have a beautiful gathering and let's not put people on the spot. And, and I was like, okay, yeah, you're right. I don't, you know, sure. You know, it was a little late in the game and, you know, I was still yeah. worried about the turkey being moist and I had some other concerns. <laughs> and so we just kind of rolled with it. And I'm curious what you think about this idea of, you know, I'm going to put people on the spot and some people don't like structure. Mm-hmm. Putting people on the spot and structure often get tangled and they're not the same thing. So what I what I love about your instinct was you wanted to create what I would call a moment of focus. 
a moment in which people agree to partake in some form of ritual, you know, my language, not yours, where they're reminded and spend time experiencing, embodying, and exploring the purpose behind the gathering, right? As opposed to indirectly doing it through eating the turkey, right? So part of the reason why I wrote this book is I think we over rely on implicit and indirect forms of meaning making. And we, we, we over rely on putting meaning into things. So what I mean by that is like Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving only because of the turkey or of the stuffing or a birthday party is a birthday party because of the cake and the candles. Um, and, you know, and so on. And I think for decades, we've been told that if we get the things right, right, uh, Martha Stewart has a party planning guide that I've you know, poured over and there's 27 steps and only three of them have to do with what to do with your guests and, and their logistics. Send out the invitations, ask for RSVPs, you know, tell people they can bring something if they need to. But then there's three steps to, you know, on how to prep the perfect crudité. And, you know, I don't mean to pick on Martha, but I think part of the problem is we've our assumptions of what makes a gathering meaningful has been over-indexed on getting the things right. And what I love about your instinct, um, you know, with your wife is creating some moment where meaning is created through language and through words. And, and you know, we know that, that, that community is built through the creation of meaningful conversation. And I think, you know, I, it's one thing to perhaps spring, spring it on people, you know, a few minutes beforehand. Um, but I think that structure, including for introverts, is often actually very appreciated. It can actually be much more complicated to kind of navigate an ambiguous and ambivalent social dynamic where you have to think about all of the things to say um, than if you kind of are told, like, for a limited period of time, perhaps not the whole dinner, we're going to do this. Um, and I think, if, you know, a couple hours beforehand, what I would have done um, because sometimes people do get pissed off if they don't feel like this is what they signed up for. And I've definitely been in that situation where people are upset with me um, would be when people come in or text a few allies ahead of time and say, hey, like, I, you know, would you be up for this? And and I think there's ways you can prime people right away. Um, I mean, you know, at the last minute and the the every gathering is a social contract. It's like you're kind of promising some things and people are act behaving based on that promise. Um, but I think you can change the social contract even like five or 10 or 15 minutes ahead of time if you do it with care. And if people say no, then don't do it. But I would say you stopped too early. Now let's go to the birthday party and making meaning with someone's birthday, because I think that's something many, many people experience. And if it's your own birthday, you might end up afterwards being like, okay, glad that's over with. I mean, we all sang happy birthday. I'm an adult, but they sang happy birthday to me. It's over. Yay. Uh, I'm sh- mm-hmm. sharing with you my own bias there. But uh, Or if you go to someone's mm-hmm. birthday, at what point do I stand up and I make a toast to the glory of their life and how much I love them? And really? So what are your ideas for making birthday parties meaningful gatherings? I know I sound like a broken record, but I would a- start with purpose. The purpose is to celebrate this human. Let's just say that. It's to celebrate this human. We love this human. Well, so I think it depends on who is hosting it, right? So it's different if I'm saying I want to have a birthday party this year versus if my partner is saying I want to have a birthday party for you, right? So so the first is like who is hosting this and what is their purpose? And I think why I say what the purpose is is to get more specific than we tend to. So 
what I would say to, if it's your birthday, is what is a need? It's the same question I asked to Jancy Dunn about the dinner party. What is a need in your life right now that people might come together by coming together? They help you fulfill. And perhaps your birthday is an excuse for them to come together, right? So I know a lot of adults who feel like, do I really want people to come together and sing a song and bring me presents? Like it feels a little, you know, seventh grade. And for some people, that's totally fine and they love it. But for, I think the most of us, it, it, there's at least a part of it that feels a little cringy. It's like, do I really need to be celebrated in, like, in this form? I think the much more meaningful way to celebrate the life of somebody is to do something that represents a need or a desire that they have for the year ahead. So for example, say you, you want to celebrate the life of a human, but, but to ask more specifically, what is it that you want in this next year to kind of in, like, be more part of your life? How would you like to mark this day? And say they say, I want to do things that are more adventurous. You know, and in my 20s, I used to do things that made no sense. And now I just have a lot of routine. Okay, that's interesting. What if your birthday party, quote unquote, birthday party in quotes, was a 5 a.m. visit with 10 friends to the, the, the wharfs and watch the fishermen bring in their, their catch? That's interesting. Right. We have we get too stuck to the form of a birthday party. Everyone get in the kitchen and living room like, you know, three quarters of the way through, bring out the birthday cake, have some toast. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that we have not rethunk modern ritual to actually match our needs. And we're all lacking from it. We're suffering from it because we try to have we create meaning through through rituals that we did not create ourselves and may not actually match the need in our life right now. And we haven't been given permission to rethink the way we do these things. And I'm trying to give people permission. (laughs) Have you ever created a birthday gathering for yourself that you found really meaningful? Um, Yeah. I mean, one that comes to mind was probably eight or nine years ago. I was um, actually at a really difficult moment in my life. I, I, um, I fainted on a plane and uh, was taken off in a stretcher. And a few weeks later, I went and saw my doctor kind of in, in the town I was living at the time. And he basically said to me, um, there's, nothing, there's nothing kind of wrong with you. All of your results came back fine. But, as, you know, your vitamin D levels are a little low. <laughs> but as I look at this, I think you've been kind of, you've been running on empty. And you're, you've been on, war, his words were, you've been on war footing and your soldiers have run out of supplies. And I strongly suggest you take some time off. So I did. And long story short, I still wasn't feeling well. I took some time off. I was in graduate school at the time. I was very burnt out. And um, part of that, and I, my birthday was coming up kind of two months into this phase. And I hadn't seen people in a while because I was kind of taking some time to, to heal. And I invited, I think it was eight friends, not all of my friends, including some people who I knew would kind of want to be there, but for me, for different reasons, I felt like I had to perform and I didn't want to perform. Like there were the people who I felt the most safe with. And I invited them to meet me two hours outside of the town that we were living, living in at the time it was in Western Massachusetts and um, to join me for a, for a birthday a di- a hike. And we met in this kind of sun-filled restaurant in a town no one had been to before. Everyone, you know, people said yes. They drove out. Some people like rented a zip car, like not everyone had cars. They caravan together, they carpooled together. We had brunch together in this like beautiful sun-filled restaurant. And then we went on this four-hour hike in the woods with, you know, beautiful changing leaves. And then we all drove home. And I don't think there was a birthday cake. 
And it was this beautiful time. And at, at, oh, at the restaurant, not everybody knew each other. Again, now you're starting to get this may make your wife, you know, cringe, but I, I, I asked one of my other friends, I'd love to have a meaningful conversation that connects people, but can you do it? I, again, I didn't want to, I didn't want to host it in part because people kind of like know my, you know, know my tricks. Um, and a friend of mine kind of said, Hey, Priya most wanted us to get together so we can get to know each other and be with her. And I remember she came up with this icebreaker that I'd never heard of before. She said, if everyone just go like, say your name and what is a scar that you have? Like, then tell the story of how you got it. And people were like, physical scar, you know, psychological scar. And she just smiled. She said, however you want to interpret it. And it, and then and you have to kind of break through the like sort of awkwardness of that moment, but like the courage to hold the awkwardness and keep going. And, you know, because it was my birthday and I had some legitimacy, people started answering it. And I heard stories from friends of mine that I never knew. You know, a bicycle uh, fell off my bike when I was five years old, went home crying, bloody knees, and my mother screamed at me, why are you crying? And in that moment, I understood so much more of my friend than I had in five years of friendship. And so all of that to say is, like, there's some structure, and when use your birthday to get people to do things that you want them to do that they would normally not do because it's your birthday. That's good. That's, that's, that's the beauty of gathering around your birthday. Now, in the book, The Art of Gathering, one of the sentences I pulled out that really got my attention is that gathering is a form of leadership. Mm. And, you know, during this conversation, I picked up on you mentioning that at this Davos Forum, one of the things you were teaching on is new models of leadership. So how is gathering a form of leadership? Most beliefs, norms, decisions sense of identity formation happens when we're with other people. And often the format through which we're with other people happens for specific moments in time with a beginning, a middle, and an end. A meeting, a workshop, a birthday party, a conference, a, uh, a, a, a treaty between countries. And I find gatherings as a specific moment in time where you can actually design and help shape how people interact, what they talk about, what their sense of the possible might be because of the conversation they had, um, what things you laugh about and you think are funny and what things are not appropriate, quote unquote. And gatherings are basically the social laboratories where we don't think about them this way, but where again, individual and collective identity is, is broken and remade. Um, whether it's an orientation at a company where it's, that's more explicit or whether it's simply a, you know, your annual, your annual you know, board of directors meeting, like how do you spend that time? If you look at gathering as a form of leadership, it's basically a form of influencing other people and helping them come together and, you know, through conversation, generate new ideas or create um, or be with each other in a way that um, you didn't think was possible. You know, one of my favorite examples from the, actually, this isn't in the book. I, I interviewed him and, and it, it, it was part of the, a chapter that was cut. I interviewed a man, you know, part of this process is I interviewed a, over a hundred gatherers who gather in extreme ways. So a circus soleil choreographer, a camp counselor of an Arab Jewish summer camp, a dominatrix, a Zen Buddhist monk, um, 
And one of the, and, but then I also interviewed people who were, whose lives were changed by a gathering. So one of these people that I interviewed, his name was, his first name was Daniel. He talked about the Million Man March. And you think about leadership. This was a, uh, you know, unprecedented gathering, probably since the, um, well, for particularly for black men, right? Very, again, specific, disputable. That's why it was powerful. Um, and I asked him, you know, what was the experience like for you? And he said, well, it was the most amazing experience in part because as a black man, you know, I, I, I drove down from New York. Um, the, there were like vans, like at gas stations, all like honking and smiling and grinning and so much joy. And then I got to the, um, to the march and I'd never seen like just like a sea of black men, a sea of basically, you know, me, versions of me. And I sat there and I started and I welled up with tears and I thought, this is dawn. This is, it, it, this is dawn. And I thought, and, and he said, and he said this in an interview, you know, on the record, he said, and, and then I had an instinct where I, for a second, I was also scared. I thought, oh my goodness, this many black men together. I feel, I feel scared. And then I immediately felt shame. My God, what have I internalized about the story of us? And then he, and he goes and he said, and for nine hours, I went in that sea and it was beautiful and the way we were together. And I don't even really remember the speeches, but the experience that somebody had this idea to bring together, you know, this group of people for a moment of time. And he said, and I thought for my life, what if we are the solution? What if we aren't the problem? And, you know, he gave me this interview 20 years later. And I said, well, many people would say like things have actually gotten worse after that in March, that, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and all of the various particularly, you know, race relations have kind of gotten, you know, I don't know, more explicit, however you would want to frame it. And he said, I don't say that that's not true. I think it's taken a different form. But what that gathering meant to me is that it's a memory that I will always take with me of a, of a different way of being, being together, being in the country and a different sense of what it possibility could be of what good could come. Um, when when your identity is considered normal and not deviant. You know, Priya, this leads to one of the final questions I want to ask you, but I wanted to make sure that we covered this, which is I think that a lot of Sounds True listeners are deeply concerned, as I am, about the recent rise that we're seeing in hate crimes, various kinds mm. of hate crimes, whether it's anti-Semitism or, you know, shootings in a black church. And knowing your history, both in conflict resolution and in meaningful dialogue and generating meaningful dialogue and bringing people together, I wonder what you think people can do, everyday people can do who want to address this in some powerful way? I mean, to me, this is like the most important question to be asking right now. Arthur Brooks had a column a couple of days ago in the New York Times um, where he was re reviewing a new book called Them um, by, a, I think, a senator from Nebraska. One of the things that he says, starting from your original question, um, is that some of these crimes, are, and particularly hate crimes, are symptoms or at least correlations with loneliness. And it's not that, you know, it's not so direct, but it's, but, but it's, it's the idea that when we are more and more isolated from each other, we're more and more fragmented with, from each other. And by the way, in a lot of these cases, 
when uh, when masculinity has not been kind of rethought um, in an age of, of of equality, when some of these core identities that we've held onto for so long have been um, kind of hacked away to, away at without being replaced by a new integrated form, people act out. Um, and and the them becomes you know stronger and more vilified, um, and and I would just say you know I I mean frankly I think about this every day and I wonder aloud myself so I I think the first question the answer is like I don't know I I I, I I'm I'm figuring it out myself but I my 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 initial thoughts are one seek out um, seek out people and experiences that are unlike your own. So one of the questions I often ask in rooms when I go around talking about, um, about gathering is I ask, have you been to a Ramadan celebration? And in most context, in most contexts, people have, you know, the majority of the room has not, um, have not, um, you know, and, and, and what does it look like to go into places and particularly, well, there's two types of kind of engaging with others. One is engaging is asking, where do you have privilege? So in some contexts, if it, if you know if you're white, um, many of the conversations that actually are most needed to be had are with you know other other white people. In part because um, you know it, within a context of safety, particularly if it's about identity and race, um, you can have a conversation with people who um, perhaps are more likely to. Um, you know, vilify or hate or, 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 or engage in these more extreme behaviors um, than, than people without that privilege. Um, but also to reach out, I mean, one of the biggest um, gaps right now is frankly around class. You know, we don't live in the same zip codes anymore. We don't live in the same areas anymore. And, um, you know, coming apart uh, uh, looks at this very closely. I think there's now these things called super zip codes where the, you know, I think I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it's something like 80% of the wealth is concentrated in, you know, 12 zip codes. We, we don't know each, we've kind of, to borrow my husband's language, Anand Gerdadas, he says, we've fallen out of love with each other in terms of citizens. And so to go back and to ask, like, what are public ways we can, we can see each other as neighbors? Um, what, very simply, like, what does it look like to host something in a park and invite strangers to it and have a specific gathering about it? What if you did you know, Zeldin's invitation, you know, menu of conversations, but actively, consciously sought out, you know, communities that are not your own. Um, And how do we see each other as citizens again, not necessarily only talking about race and hatred? I mean, part of the loneliness conversation is how do we, again, have social capital? Um, How do we bring together people in informal ways so that uh, we don't fall through the net and have these kind of isolated people that then succumb to extreme politics in part because they're lonely and at, you know, loose ends. That's a beautiful quote from your husband. We've fallen out of love with each other. That's very beautiful. And what does it mean to fall back in love with each other? Yes, yes, yes. Now, just a final question, Priya. As we've been talking, one of the things that I've really been feeling is how powerful it is when people do take off their social masks and are really genuine with each other. Just really straight, really authentic. I feel that from you in this conversation. You know, I feel Mm -hmm. this sense of, you know, yeah, you're just going to let it 
you know, let it all hang out. And uh, I'm meeting you there. <laughs> I'm doing the same. And I'm curious to know in your experience of interviewing people about gatherings, finding people who have that capacity, that capacity to be like, yeah, you know, it's okay. You can get to know me. I'm going to be myself. I'm not just going to give you my presentational self. You mm -hmm. can know my real self. What do you think allows people to do that? I think even more than a capacity, it's a permission. And, you know, I think thinking that it's a capacity actually limits a lot of us from believing we can do it. I think, I think believing that it's all right, that it's appropriate, again, within specific contexts, unleashes people to speak in that way. Um, one of the books that um, I keep getting, you know, rec recommended is, is um, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And she, she uh, contextualizes her book in the workplace, but it's basically um, this idea that, that, that candor um, and radical candor is a much deeper way of being effective and, um, and, 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 and frankly being kind than this kind of ambivalent um, politeness that we all hide behind without actually saying what it is we think or who we are. Um, I mean, another book, uh, Ray Dalio's new book, um, writes a lot about writes a lot about what does it look like to actually say what you think. And again, it takes it to the extreme in the cultural context that he's, you know, the company that he's, he's built. Um, but I think a huge part of this is it's, it's, it's creating cultures of permission where we start modeling this and realize that the, you know, the world doesn't fall apart. And I will also say, you know, I'm very aware of power. And I think in certain contexts, um, showing yourself or showing a vulnerable side is, you know, is absolutely, you know, probably not smart. Um, you know, the, um, there's just this huge piece on the, the, the logistics company. I don't know if you've heard it. Um, it was on the daily podcast, uh, two days ago, um, of how workers are being treated in the Memphis logistics branch, you know, in that context, you know, showing vulnerability to your, you know, to your boss, or to your coworkers is not only not appropriate, it, it, it is probably immoral to suggest it. Um, and so, you know, all of this, I say with the caveat of, is know your context and know the power, power dynamic. But in many cases, we often, by hiding from one another, we are not only disconnected, um, at the, at the deepest level, it's, it's a form of, I mean, I was going to say abuse, but it's a, it's a form of, um, I think over the long term, it creates more pain mm -hmm. on both sides. Mm -hmm. Okay. And to end our conversation, here's the prompt I've been using as part of this podcast. The podcast is called Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious to know what somebody's edge is in terms of their own growth trajectory as a person. Like, this is my growing edge. This is what I'm working on right now in my life, truth be told. Priya? <laughs> my growing edge <clears throat> is to be more comfortable and understanding about what my own beliefs are, um, what my own non-negotiables are, what my own opinions are, and not only be, um, you know, so deeply listening to others that I can be a chameleon. Mm -hmm. I love it. I've been speaking with Priya Parker. She's the author of the book, The Art of Gathering. 
How We Meet and Why It Matters, and she's the founder of Thrive Labs, which helps people design meaningful, transformational gatherings. Priya, thank you so much for the conversation. I've really enjoyed getting to know you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What beautiful questions. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world. Thanks for listening.